A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of violent death, dismemberment, suicide, and assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about vampires. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original by Parcast. Every Monday, we tell the stories of some of humankind's most terrifying creations. By taking a look at the histories and cultural context behind these legendary fiends, we strive to better understand the anxieties that inspired them and hopefully overcome the fears that still plague us to this day. This week, we're talking about one of the most ubiquitous monsters in modern-day fiction. Nocturnal bloodsuckers have been around in various forms for thousands of years, but the vampires we know today originally emerged during the 1700s. At the time, they were symbols of corruption. They represented the physical corruption that our bodies experience after death, the corruption of our souls, and even the corruption of society itself. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we'll dive into the early history of vampires. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The castle sat alone among the craggy peaks of the Carpathian Mountains. Vines grew up its sides, and the red and white flag of the Ottoman Empire hung limply from its crumbling turrets. The Ottomans had been driven out almost 30 years ago. The fortress was certainly abandoned. Arnaud watched just ahead as his captain crept up the narrow stairs, leading Arnaud and the other men up the side of the mountain. Arnaud had not joined this band of Hajduks for glory or even for vengeance on the Habsburg occupiers. All he wanted was to make enough money to buy a little plot of land back home. Every night, as he lay shivering under his thin wool blanket, he imagined returning to the farmstead nestled in the foothills of the Carpathians. Though they were the same mountains, the green meadows of home could not be more different from the lifeless gray peaks that towered over him now. Arnaud pictured Nina running out of the whitewashed farmhouse and jumping into his arms. Her father, Ivan, would be standing behind her, wearing his usual disapproving frown. Ivan had taken Arnaud in when he was an orphan boy of only seven. Though he'd lived under his roof for 18 years, Ivan had never given him a kind word. But when Arnaud returned with a sack of gold, he knew the old man would have to give his blessing for Arnaud and Nina to be married. It would be a cause for celebration. All three would head into the farmhouse kitchen where they would eat bundevara sprinkled with sugar. 
Arnaud had never been brave, but the thought of those pastries gave him the strength to confront anything. He thought of them now as he watched the captain push open the decaying wooden side door and signal to the rest of the men. The coast was clear. They followed him up the steps. As they passed through the narrow passageway, Arnaud gasped. He was standing in a banquet hall with high, sloping ceilings. A dining table of polished mahogany stood in front of a marble fireplace. High-backed chairs with camlet cushions lined the walls, and the floor was thick with fine Persian rugs. Arnaud had expected the fortress to be picked clean by other bands of haiduks, but this place looked as if no one had touched it since the Ottomans abandoned it. The captain instructed them to search the castle for anything of value. As the men fanned out, Arnaud noticed that one of the tapestries was hanging slightly away from the wall. Something was behind it. He pulled it aside to reveal a low doorway. It led to a set of stone steps that spiraled downwards into blackness. A smile spread over Arnaud's face. He had heard stories about how the Ottoman sultans built secret rooms to store their gold. He took a deep breath and climbed down into the darkness. Arnaud heard low animal sounds coming from below, muffled grunts and snorts. He tried to assure himself it was just mice or some livestock that had gotten loose. Finally, he reached an old wooden door at the bottom of the steps. Arnaud pushed lightly against it, and it swung open into a narrow stone room. Immediately, he was hit by the strong stench of rot and decay, making him gag. Arnaud wondered if there was a pile of dead rats somewhere in the room. The space was illuminated by pale gray light, filtering in from a few narrow slits in the stone high above him. At his level, the walls were lined with shallow alcoves. Arnaud could make out the distinctive glint of gold within them. He picked up a gleaming object in the alcove closest to him. It was a drinking horn with rubies set into the handle. This one piece alone would be worth more than enough to buy his farm. Arnaud's pulse quickened. He shoved the horn into his leather satchel and turned toward the door. Just then, he heard a new sound coming from the back of the room. It was a wet slurping, punctuated by occasional grunts. His blood ran cold. He turned slowly and peered into the dim chamber. He noticed for the first time that there were dark shapes scattered over the floor. Arnaud took a few steps forward and knelt down to look at one of them. The smell wasn't rotting rats. It was human. There were a few corpses at the front of the room, but most of them were piled up along the back wall. As he gazed in horror at the bodies littered across the floor, Arnaud made out an enormous figure seated on a white metal armchair. The thing looked like a man, but its limbs and face were swollen and enormous. Arnaud knew now what had been making that awful noise. The thing was gnawing on a child's corpse. Many people think of Transylvania as the birthplace of the vampire, 
But in that mountainous region of Romania, there's no creature called the vampire. There's only a monster that inspired stories of vampires. It's a dead body brought back to feed on the living, and it's known as the Strigoi. There are some stories of Strigoi drinking blood, but they subsist just as often on less tangible sources of energy. They're known to drain life force, typically feeding on family members or villagers until their victims fall ill and die. They can also drain power from animals and the environment. Strigoi might drink the energy of bees, making them unable to pollinate crops, or they could take the power of a storm, leaving the countryside in a drought. But the Strigoi are just one of many creatures the vampire has evolved from. There are also the Lamia of ancient Greece and Rome, beautiful women who drank the blood of children. And in Norse mythology, the Draugr, which we've discussed on another episode of Mythical Monsters, a corporeal spirit who haunts grave sites by night, killing those who venture onto its territory. Then there are dozens of Eastern European variations on the vampire itself, from a Polish vampire who eats the garment it was buried in before killing its family, to a Serbian Romani belief in vampiric farm tools and vegetables, inanimate objects that come to life and attack if left sitting out for too long. These creatures provided the basis for the modern vampire legend, before they became the children of the night that we know today. Those vampires emerged out of Eastern Europe in the early 1700s as the culmination of centuries of evolving folklore. They merged the beautiful, blood-drinking creatures of the Lamia with the nocturnal habits of the Draugr and the destructive tendencies of the Strigoi. One of the first accounts of these creatures came from a Serbian soldier named Arno Paoli. In 1727, Paoli was a Hajduk, a member of an independent militia fighting against foreign empires occupying Eastern Europe. During his time as a soldier, Arnaud supposedly encountered one of the vampire precursors. It was a creature called a Vrikolakos, a Greek revenant that took the form of a bloated corpse with a hunger for human livers. Arnaud's encounter with a Vrikolakos would eventually lead to the creation of a terrifying creature, the likes of which had never been seen before. Arnaud stared in horror at the bloated creature in front of him. The monster tossed aside the remains of the child that had been devouring and stood, stepping into the dim slits of light. Here and there, its skin was peeling off, revealing a layer of raw, red flesh beneath. Its eyes were milky white, and fresh blood dripped from its lips. Arnaud looked desperately at the door behind him. It was too far now, at least six feet away. The creature took a step forward, and Arnaud backed up. Then it lunged. Arnaud ran to the door. He wrenched it open and made it through just as the creature caught up. But before he could close the door, a single grotesque arm reached through and seized one of his legs. It dragged him back into the room. Arnaud struggled against its grip, kicking wildly at its head with his free leg. It grabbed at Arnaud's chest, tearing his clothes to get at the flesh beneath. Arnaud fumbled with the sword at his side. 
Finally, he managed to move it out of its scabbard and slice the corpse at the elbow. The expression on its face was one of surprise rather than pain, but its reaction gave Arnaud just enough time to wrench himself free of its grip. He scrambled to his feet and flung himself into the stairwell. Arnaud slammed the door shut behind him and fastened the deadbolt. He could hear the creature clawing at the splintering wood as he sprinted up the stairs. Arnaud neared the top of the stairs and screamed, Get out! Get out now! He emerged into the great hall and looked around. The room was empty and completely silent. Just a few minutes ago, it had been crawling with soldiers searching for treasure. Arnaud called out again, but there was no response. He walked around the massive table in the center of the room, searching the upper balconies for any sign of his comrades. As he drew closer to the entrance, his foot caught on something and he stumbled. Arnaud looked down to see the captain. His shirt was torn open, exposing his mangled chest. Shards of broken ribs jutted up from the cavity where his liver should have been. His face was frozen in a silent scream. Up next, Arnaud comes home a changed man. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous, or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye, or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain. You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. Now back to the story. Arnaud trudged up the old dirt road that led to Nina's farm. He'd pictured his return from the militia a thousand times, but he never imagined it would feel so hollow. Two months ago, he'd been exploring an abandoned fortress with his troop when he'd come across a monstrous, bloated corpse eating human flesh. He'd managed to get away, but the rest of the soldiers hadn't been so lucky. After fleeing from the keep, Arnaud had walked all night and through the following day. Finally, when he felt like he couldn't take another step, he lay down on a bed of pine needles and fell into a deep sleep. It was then that the nightmares came. He dreamed of rivers of blood and mountains of bone. When he awoke, he couldn't move or breathe. A demon sat on his chest and cackled, its saliva dripping from its leering mouth and onto his face. It took everything he had to break himself from the paralysis. 
Arnaud tried to convince himself that he was fine. It was only the memories of the castle that were haunting him, nothing that could really hurt him. How wrong he'd been. Every night the nightmares returned, and when he awoke, the paralysis would be worse. Eventually, he found himself lying motionless for hours. He began to sleep less and less, preferring to stay awake than enter his terrifying dreams. He would walk well into the night until he collapsed from exhaustion. It might have gone on for weeks if he hadn't stumbled into the camp of the Greek soldier. He was a young man wearing the red cap and brass vest of a cleft, a brigand. He introduced himself as Demetrios, and the two got to talking. When the soldier asked why he looked so tired, Arnaud broke down into tears. As he related his story, Demetrios frowned. He asked if he had the jacket and shoes he'd worn that night. Arnaud nodded. Demetrios smiled and held out his hand. Give them to me. Though the request made him a bit uneasy, Arnaud pulled off his jacket and shoes and handed them over. The Greek soldier looked at the jacket until he found the reddish-brown spot where it was stained with the creature's blood. He smiled knowingly at Arnaud. It sounds like you encountered a Vricolacos. I believe here they're called Strigoi. Whatever you call them, they're all the same. Undead monsters that prey on the living. In Greece, we have a cure for their infection. Demetrios had been boiling water in a tin pot. He removed it from the fire. Then he lay the bloodstain over an earthenware mug and poured water onto the fabric. He continued, You must use its blood and the earth from its grave to make a tea. After that, he will have no more power over you. Demetrios removed the jacket from the cup, Arnaud could see that the water inside had been tinged red as it passed through the fabric. Demetrios then held up one of Arnaud's leather boots and scraped away the outer layer of dirt. He picked up a few pieces of earth from cracks in the soles and stirred them into the cup. Then he held it out to Arnaud. He said with a smile, drink up. Arnaud took the cup and gazed into the reddish-brown liquid. It looked disgusting, but nothing could be worse than the hell he was already living. He held his nose and tipped the steaming beverage down his throat. The effect was immediate. Arnaud wasn't tired anymore. He wasn't hungry or cold or anything at all. He felt numb, empty. Demetrios raised an eyebrow and asked, Did it work? Arnaud stood up and said he'd better be going. Demetrios frowned. You're going to travel in the dark? Arnaud shrugged. He turned west and left the Greek soldier staring after him. After that, there was no fear, no hunger or exhaustion. Arnaud walked day and night toward the whitewashed farmhouse where his beloved Nina was waiting. But when Nina flung herself into his arms, he felt nothing. And when he showed Nina's father the golden drinking horn and the old man embraced him for the first time in his life, the experience left Arnaud cold. Nina took him by the hand and led him into the house saying, come, I've made pumpkin bundevera your favorite. 
Arnaud replied that he wasn't hungry. Before the 1700s, vampires were known to be marked by any number of so-called dark omens. These included babies born with a call, men who would not eat garlic, and the children of women who would not eat salt. Today, however, there's only one generally accepted way of joining the undead, transmission via blood. Essentially, the curse is passed like a disease. Part of the terror of vampire lore after the 18th century was the fact that anyone was susceptible. Cases played out like any other contagion. After a vampire attack, the victim would be contaminated and transformed. Then they would inflict the curse of vampirism upon others. It spread rapidly, reproducing tenfold with each new host. As with any plague, cures sprang up. Some folk beliefs suggested rubbing oneself with the vampire's blood or earth from its grave. Others recommended drinking a concoction of the two. Most went even further. The most common cure for vampirism was to exhume the body of the vampire, cut out its heart, burn it, and drink the ashes. Variations of this grisly ritual appeared frequently in cases of vampirism reported by officials in the Habsburg Army of Austria, but it also cropped up in many cases through New England. Throughout the 1800s, outbreaks of tuberculosis in the American Northeast were accompanied by a kind of mass hysteria folklorists refer to as vampire panics. Consumption, as tuberculosis was called at the time, killed slowly. Victims grew pale and thin over a period of years, almost as if something is sucking the life force out of them. And as their loved ones withered away, New Englanders became convinced that a deceased family member was preying on the ill. Then there was only one way to save them. The body of the suspected vampire was exhumed, their heart and liver were removed, burned, and then mixed into a tonic that was fed to the dying victim. The true case of Arnaud Paoli ended similarly. When Arnaud's death was followed by four more unexplained deaths, his corpse was exhumed and staked through the heart before being cremated. These real-life cases were expressions of the way that sickness preys on every part of our lives. Contagion starts with one person, but eventually it kills whole families, sinking those who remain into paralyzing despair. In small, isolated communities, society itself begins to deteriorate. Vampires were like an epidemic, and if left unchecked, they would eventually consume everything good in the world. Nina and her father Ivan prepared the traditional daka by spreading out a blanket on a hill outside the farm. They set dishes of Arnaud's favorite foods in the center of the blanket. Then they sat down and waited for the guests to arrive. It had been three months since Arnaud had returned and 41 days since he had killed himself. The guests were mostly farmhands, but there were also a few friends from his time as a haiduk, those who hadn't been able to make it to the other memorial meals held in his honor. Nina had adored Arnaud since the day they met. As children, the two were inseparable. They climbed trees in the summer and built snow forts in the winter. 
After many years, their friendship blossomed into love. Then Arnaud got the idea to join the Hajduks. Nina begged him not to go, but he wouldn't listen. She'd waited six long years for him to return, but in a way, he never had. He'd been different when he came back, even when he'd asked Nina to marry him, a moment she had waited for all her life, he'd seemed distant and unfeeling. Still, for months she had labored over the wedding preparations. She bought peacock feathers to weave into her wreath and spent hours embroidering tiny flowers on her veil. Then, the day before the wedding, Arnaud disappeared. Nina sent some of the farmhands out to the local tavern, but he was nowhere to be seen. Nina found him that evening when she went to the barn to milk the cows, hanging from the rafters. The church would not allow him to be interred on consecrated ground, so instead they buried him on a green hillside by the farm. One by one, the guests left until it was just Nina and her father, they cleared the dishes and headed back to the whitewashed farmhouse. As night descended, Nina found herself wandering out to the barn. Ever since Arnaud's death, she'd been spending more time there. It was as though she was drawn to the place where her beloved had spent his last moments. As she approached the old stone building, she was surprised to see the door standing open. There was a strange sound coming from inside. It was a noisy chewing, punctuated by the occasional pained moan of a cow. Nina paused near the doorway. If a predator was attacking the cows, she should fetch her father. But what if it was too late by then? Nina looked to her left, where a sickle was leaning against the side of the barn. She had endured enough this year. She would not lose one more life even if it was just a cow. She gripped the sickle and flung the door open. There was a skittering sound like a large rodent running across floorboards. Nina surveyed the scene in front of her. One of the cows was laying on the floor, blood pooled from its mouth and nose. But then she saw it. Something crouched in a darkened corner of the barn. Nina approached it with the sickle held out in front of her, and the animal gave a hissing shriek. She squinted into the darkness. Her heart pounded as she took a step closer. Then her eyes widened in terror. Arnaud looked almost exactly like he had the last time she'd seen him. His cheeks were ruddy, his skin had a dewy glow, but now his green eyes were blazing black pits and his cupid's bow lips dripped with blood. Arnaud bared his teeth and hissed like an angry cat. Nina screamed. She turned to run, but something caught her leg and she fell to the ground. As she crawled toward the door, Arnaud blocked it from view. He put his hands around her neck and began to squeeze. The last thing she saw was the face of her beloved contorted into an inhuman howl as he squeezed the last breath from her body. Up next, the infestation of vampires begins to spread. Now, back to the story. 
Johann surveyed the other passengers as the carriage rumbled through the misty hills. Dr. Hayes sat to his left, and across from him was a young Serbian couple. Beyond them was a middle-aged woman in a pink and blue traveling cloak. She smiled when he glanced at her and said, "'If I may be so bold, what brings two Englishmen to this part of the world?' Dr. Hayes chuckled and asked, "'How on earth did you know I was English?' The woman gave a treacly smile and replied, I can always tell an Englishman by his upright posture. Foreigners tend to slump, you see. Johann could have interjected that he was Austrian, but chose instead to sit back as Hayes explained, We've come to investigate a series of incidents that began with a Hajduk whose unit was killed in a fight over the remains of an Ottoman castle. A violent affair. The boy was never the same after. He died by his own hand, and his fiancée was mauled by an animal shortly after. Oh my, the woman replied. Clearly Hayes' answer was not the one she was expecting, but the old doctor continued, ignoring her shocked expression. There have also been several other unrelated deaths. Of course, the villagers believe it to be the work of vampires. They have hopes that will provide approval for the dismemberment of the corpses in order to end the plague of the undead. The woman exclaimed, Surely you don't approve of such a barbaric ritual? Hayes smiled smugly. Of course not. The truth is, these vampires are a metaphor, an expression of frustration with the Habsburg monarchy. The woman in the black dress turned to the man beside her and muttered in Serbian, I wonder how he'll feel when his metaphor is draining the blood from his body. Johan couldn't stop himself from smiling a bit. He'd never liked how the old British doctor dismissed any belief that fell outside of his own worldview, and he was amused to see he wasn't alone. The carriage ground to a halt. They had arrived in front of a whitewashed farmhouse where a gray-haired man in a yellow tunic was waiting for them. He introduced himself as Ivan. I'm glad you've come. I've heard stories about Habsburg authorities punishing Serbs for our beliefs. I wanted to be sure that our precautions would be approved by the state. Dr. Hayes looked like he was about to launch into a lecture, but Johan cut him off by asking where they could find the bodies they were meant to examine. Ivan turned toward a nearby hill and suggested they follow him. The road led to a grassy hillside, where a thin boy was standing next to an open grave with a shovel in his hand. A decaying wooden coffin sat on the grass next to the grave, and the lad was looking at it with an expression of terror and disgust. As soon as they arrived, he hurried away from the gravesite, crossing himself feverishly as he went. Dr. Hayes laughed contemptuously. Johann frowned. Dr. Hayes might not be worried, but there was something about the look on the young man's face that made him uneasy. Ivan took hold of the rotting wooden lid. He looked Johan in the eyes and said, This is our nose grave. He was the first one. We found Nina about a month later. At first, we'd thought she'd been attacked by a wild animal. Then we saw the marks around her neck. She was strangled. I'm sure of it. Johan shivered. 
The fog that covered the mountain was growing heavier. Ivan continued with his story. Then people in the village started getting sick. First, it was the widow Cabreras and her two sons. A neighbor found them in the root cellar. Then Stanitska the blacksmith and his young wife were discovered at the forge. Perhaps you think our ritual's barbaric, but we will do what is necessary. Johan wiped a tear from his eye, while Dr. Hayes looked at his pocket watch. He snapped it shut. Shall we get on with it then? Ivan heaved the lid off the coffin, and the men gathered around to peer inside. The body of a handsome youth was wrapped in a shroud of tattered wool. He had a head of thick reddish-brown hair, and his cupid's bow lips were curved into a slight smile. His shroud was beginning to disintegrate, but the body itself looked untainted by death. His cheeks were flushed and his lips were bright red, as though they had been painted. As Johann leaned closer, he realized that they were coated in fresh blood. A sudden swell of revulsion made him step away from the body. Dr. Hayes laughed. Come now, Johan, it's only a corpse. If we're going to examine it, we ought to get started. He picked up one of the wrists, remarking, No pulse is apparent, though that's to be expected. He leaned in close to the body. Ivan shouted, Please, Dr. Hayes, be careful. Dr. Hayes laughed again and replied, There's nothing to be afraid of. He looked like he might have said more, but he was cut off when a hand from the coffin seized his neck. Dr. Hayes choked and blood bubbled up from his lips. Panicking, Johan looked around and spotted the coffin lid. Johan pried a long shard of wood loose from the rotting frame. Dr. Hayes's eyes were bulging out of his head as the vampire tossed him back and forth like a rag doll. Johan ran toward the coffin with the wooden stake in his hand and plunged it into the corpse's heart. The creature gave an inhuman shriek and a fountain of cold, coagulating blood erupted from its chest. The vampire released its grip on Dr. Hayes, dropping the man's limp body and letting it fall across the top of the coffin. Panting heavily, Johan ran to his colleague's side. He felt for a pulse, but the man was dead. His heart was still pounding as he turned to Ivan and declared, Sir, you have permission to do whatever you'd like with this body and any other that requires disposal. Ivan nodded grimly. Johan turned away from the scene and wretched. Of the many stories about blood-sucking monsters, none have made as powerful an impact as a novel written in 1897 by an unassuming Irish theater manager. Bram Stoker's Dracula tells the story of an English solicitor named Jonathan Harker. Harker is summoned to Count Dracula's remote mountain castle in order to assist him in a real estate transaction. Dracula imprisons Harker in his castle before boarding a ship supplied with 50 crates of Transylvanian soil. He then travels to England where he preys upon various attractive young women, including Harker's fiancée, Mina. 
In writing the novel, Bram Stoker pulled from dozens of disparate vampire stories. Like the Greek Vrikolakos, Dracula must be invited in before he can enter a house. His ability to walk through walls and his lust for blood are derived from the Romanian Strigoi, and his power to turn himself into a bat comes from a Hindu folktale. Stoker pulled the name Dracula from a 15th-century Wallachian prince named Vlad III. The Romanian prince's father, Vlad II, took on the surname Dracul, and Vlad III then took on the surname Dracula, or son of Dracul. Vlad Dracula was an almost folkloric figure in his own right. His fabled bloodlust was certainly part of what inspired Stoker to use his name. Dracula's various powers and weaknesses may have been taken from traditional vampire folklore, but the character himself is a unique creation. Unlike the bloated peasant corpses that populate earlier vampire tales, Dracula was a handsome member of the aristocracy. His blood drinking often took place in the bedroom, and particular emphasis was put on the erotic aspects of the act. The tearing of clothes, the sucking of bodily fluid, and the noises made by the victims are all described using explicitly sexual language. Dracula is presented as an exotic stranger with a threatening, carnal appetite, but Jonathan Harker was the picture of Victorian-era British respectability. He fought against a lascivious foreigner who literally brought with him the soil of his own country. The story of Dracula represents a type of colonial xenophobia, a fear that dangers from the British Empire might find their way back to England itself. Opium intended for China would rot British society from within, while immigrants coming from Eastern Europe would rot it from without. For a long time, the British aristocracy had enjoyed a level of protected privilege that was beginning to deteriorate. But much like a vampiric curse, the colonized masses were creeping in and threatening Englishmen with their own kind of contagion. After the pale Austrian doctor had finished vomiting, Ivan sent him away. If he hadn't been able to handle the vampire's death, he certainly wouldn't have the stomach for what came next. Ivan removed a dagger from his waistcoat pocket and knelt beside Arnaud's corpse. Ivan had always loved him. He'd never said it because he was a stubborn old fool. He'd thought that telling Arnaud the truth would make him weak. If only he'd told him that he thought of him as a son, he should have said that Arnaud made every day a bit more cheerful and that he needn't make a single dime to earn anyone's love. Maybe everything could have been different. Ivan sighed as he dug into Arnaud's chest cavity. He slid his hand into the loose pool of organs. The smell of rotting flesh nearly made him wretch himself, but he closed his eyes and tried not to breathe. His fingers closed around Arnaud's heart. He pulled it out and shook his head sadly. What is done is done. There's no use wishing you could change it. He tried to keep that in mind later in the evening when he was cutting out his daughter's heart in the same way. That night, he built a fire and threw the organs into it together. 
he watched as the two flaming hearts fused into one piece of ash. They could be together in death as they never were in life. Perhaps one of the most distinctive parts of the early vampire stories is the sense of how real they must have felt to the people who lived through them. The vampire's roots are not found in some prehistoric beast or rare natural phenomenon. They're based in the single most unavoidable human experience, death. Many of the more common signs of vampirism were in fact natural results of decomposition. As our skin becomes dehydrated, it shrinks back, making the hair and nails appear to grow. Intestinal decomposition causes bloating that forces blood up into the mouth, and bodies interred during winter take months to fully decompose. Today, we explain these phenomena with scientific observations, and the European peasants of the early 1700s did much the same thing. They saw their relatives withering away, taken by disease and decay, and came up with an explanation of their own based on the knowledge available to them. The vampire was every plague that ever afflicted humanity. Like death itself, vampirism destroyed our emotional well-being and created cracks in the foundation of our communities. It caused our bodies to decay, making them into unrecognizable monstrosities that terrified our loved ones. But perhaps the most frightening aspect of the vampire was the fact that it could not be contained. Every disease will spread, it will multiply itself a hundredfold, and it can never truly be killed. No matter how many vampires you stake, one will always come back. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on vampires, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Vampire, A New History by Nick Groom, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? Look closely and examine the writing on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday, free on Spotify.